So I have a um, a very morbid interest uh, in something that we see from time to time, and that is um, the people that they interview when somebody turns out to be like a serial killer or a mass murderer, right? They always find out about this person, and there's always one, like this desire to know more about them, and often they go to their next door neighbor, right? And what I find fascinating about it is that they often have the same story, right? How many times have you seen it and they go, I don't know, he was a pretty quiet guy, kept to himself, never caused much trouble. I mean, we're just really shocked that this happened, right? We've heard that interview a million times on TV, that most of these heinous, terrible people that have killed all these people, they're always just a quiet, easygoing guy to their neighbors. The one I find even more interesting is when they get the parents. And you should feel some sympathy for the parents. I'm a bad person, so I don't. And I'm always amazed by how the parents never see it coming, right? They're always tearful. They're like, my baby would never do anything like this. And one of my goals as a parent, this is really ridiculous. If my children ever commits a terrible crime, I want to be honest enough to go, yeah, I could see it being a possibility, right? You know, like to know that, yeah, you know, my kid wasn't perfect. They weren't an angel. Sometimes they did bad things, you know? It is always fascinating to see how people respond to their family members or their neighbors or people they know doing bad things. Because we really don't feel comfortable with the guilt by association thing. We don't feel comfortable when people we love sort of embarrass us. Maybe you've had that experience um, before, and maybe it's the way you feel about Christians. Uh, I think most of us in the room would identify as Christians, and it seems like that is becoming a harder and harder identity to take on in the world today. This is an article a friend shared recently from the Barna Group. Uh, they do a lot of good research on culture and Christianity, and they do surveys and ask what people think about Christianity and the church. And what they found is increasingly the average American hears the word Christian, and they think of an extremist. And they had this whole list of behaviors, and they asked them, you know, these are things Christians do. Do you think it's extreme, and do you think it's not? And some of them, I look at them and go, yeah, that's extremist. Some of them, uh, there's, I don't know, something like one in five people think you're an extremist if you read a Bible at a Starbucks. It strikes me that that's not extreme, right? It's just reading a book. <laughs> but there's this growing sort of anti-Christian feeling, and for some good reasons, and sometimes I think we can feel embarrassed the same way you might be embarrassed of mom and dad, Right? Where mom and dad, when you were a teenager or a kid, did something and you were like, oh, please stop, we're in public. And some of you are probably watching the news or looking at Christians in public or driving by some guy with a bullhorn in the middle of downtown, whatever it is, you're seeing other Christians and you're like, guys, we're in public. Can we not do this? And you're possibly in a place where you're consistently feeling a fight on both sides. You're telling your friends who are fellow believers, would you cut it out with this weird stuff? And then you're sitting on the other side and telling your non-Christian friend, we're really normal, I promise. 
we're, we're nice people. You know, we like others. We're not, you know, all sorts of things that the media portrays us to be. Trust me. And then your Christian friends do something that reinforces the stereotype. You're like, guys, knock it off. Right? I hope that that's, that's hitting at a tension that maybe you feel in your life. And the question is, how do we deal with things when we are feeling like our fellow Christians are embarrassing us and leaving us out to dry. More importantly, how does God deal with it? If it gets to a point where the church as a whole is just not pulling their weight, what does God do for those who are and are kind of getting sucked up in the bad, um, the bad direction of the larger group? So obviously we're going to talk about the book of Zephaniah, all right? So we have been working through this series of um, lessons on these books in the Hebrew Bible that we know are there, but we almost never read and we don't do much with. And today we're going to talk about Zephaniah because Zephaniah is a book that talks about God uh, dealing with his people when he's very annoyed at his people and what they've become and how he deals with the few people amongst them that are still trying to do the right thing. Uh, let me just point out real quick, this is not my notes, the danger of this, right, is identifying us as the good people, right? Even that sermon setup is like, yes, that's how us good Christians who are doing the right thing feel about all those bad Christians who are doing the wrong things, right? And there is obviously a hubris and a chance at sort of misunderstanding yourself and not acknowledging your own stuff. And so let's just keep that in mind as we talk about these things. Uh, Zephaniah chapter 1, the very beginning of the book. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind off the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Uh, this passage is dealing largely with idolatry, right? I slipped and I used the uh, scholarly term, most of us call it Baal, right? Baal is how you would say it uh, more in the original language. But Baal and Molech are talked about here. And Baal and Molech would be common um, idols, we would call them, or other gods of other cultures in the time of Israel. I gave you a few pictures here. Um, we found a great little treasure trove of Baal idols um, at a place called Ugarit and some other surrounding areas that are in the Louvre Museum. So if you ever get to go to Paris, see the Mona Lisa, but also spend some time in the Ugaritic material. That might not sound like fun, but it'll help you understand your Bible a lot better. And uh, this is Baal right here, the, the king of the, the storm, sort of thunder, um, rains, uh, fertility. Um, that pose is likely with a lightning bolt in his hand. I don't know if he lost it or if we're always supposed to imagine it. Um, also, these are 
these are really tiny, right? We have images of them going and worshiping statues that are 100 feet tall. But that thing is, I think, about this big. Um, and so that's, that's Baal. And that would have been one of these deities. Molech, we apparently don't have any ancient versions of. I have a really crummy picture here. This is a Babylonian seal. And I don't know if it's technically Molech, but it describes child sacrifice. You can see here, uh, dad bringing Junior to kill him in front of the deity right here. Um, there's a lot of debate about child sacrifice and how much it happened in the ancient world, but this seems to be at least some evidence. And in the Bible, Molech is always the deity that is associated with child sacrifice. And so in this passage, Zephaniah says God is ready to destroy the whole world because of its idolatry. Because the world continues to go to these deities and bow down to them and to worship them and to treat them as if they are the creators of the universe. And God is not happy with this. And the reason that God is not happy with this is because he's a jealous God. In the fire of God's jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed. For he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. Uh, this phrase, the jealousy of God, is a little disturbing to us, okay? Uh, we, generally, we generally have emotions or attitudes that are positive and negative in our mind, and when we like to describe God, we always like to use the positive ones for God and the negative ones for not God, right? And so we come here, we have this word jealousy, and very rarely in your life are you going to call someone jealous, and that's positive, right? You're never going to say, oh, he's such a jealous guy. It's awesome. Usually jealous is a bad term for us, but the Bible is consistent in describing God as being jealous. Um, I think there's a couple of ways. I, I, we've got to talk about it because it's here. I think there's a couple of ways that we can kind of process this. Some of this may feel redundant if you've heard me talk about this before. Um, the first is that when it comes to romantic relationships, we understand jealousy, right? I saw an interesting survey once of the changing sexual ethics of Americans where they, um, where they asked people, what, what of these things do you think is moral or immoral? And they found that society moved a ton from 1950 to 2010, right? Things like sex outside of marriage, uh, homosexuality, um, yeah, moving in together before you get married, all that kind of stuff, right? This was stuff they asked about, and they found that attitudes changed a lot. There was one category in which Americans actually became more conservative over 50 years on sexual ethics. And that was the question, is it wrong to cheat on your spouse? It was 96% wrong in the 50s, and 98% said it was wrong in 2010. Right? It's the one thing where people continue to go, no, that's out of bounds. And I think rightfully so. Because we all appreciate that when you have made a commitment to another person, you made that commitment. And to cheat on that commitment and to walk away from it is terrible. It ruins lives. It eats people up. We all, and I think all of us in this room have known somebody who's seen a relationship destroyed by that. And how much it hurts and how much pain it causes. And so spouses are rightfully jealous of their spouse in that they don't want them sleeping with other people. 
right? This is just, this is something we totally understand that when you get married to somebody and you say you only for the rest of our lives, you mean you only for the rest of their lives. And if they break that, you go, I'm jealous. This other person is getting a relationship with you that you promise to only me. And as a society, we still kind of understand and appreciate that, 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 that that's bad. Um, another way I think to think about it is copyright infringement. All right. This sounds very random, but why is God jealous? Uh, this is, um, so there's a new Han Solo movie coming out, right? Star Wars people, uh, Abigail is all pumped and it's coming out in a few weeks. Uh, this came out and this is a big deal. These over here are the posters from the Han Solo movie. And these are album covers from about five years ago. Um, also, these are the same color. There's another set of two that are also the same color, like literally the same purple. And what basically came out is the marketing company for Solo, as best we can tell, saw these and they thought, those are really awesome. And so they just copied the design. They didn't, I mean, it's the same colors and everything, right? Like this is rampant intellectual property theft. And Twitter went crazy. Right? Oh, this is just Disney, Mickey Mouse, blah, 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 blah. Right? And just really upset. I think rightfully so that this was stolen. Right? Part of the philosophy on why God is a jealous God is similar to copyright infringement. God said, I made this earth. I created it. It is my artistic masterpiece. And when you worship another God, you come up to my painting and you scribble his name on top of mine on my painting. And I am not okay with that. And I think that's something that many of us can still appreciate today, right? If somebody, you know, we mentioned Mona, the Mona Lisa. I, I don't think Picasso signed his stuff, but you know, like, um, oh, I need an example. Who's the guy, the cottage guy that people really love or hate? Thomas Kincaid. Can you imagine Thomas Kincaid walking up to the Mona Lisa with a Sharpie and just signing Thomas Kincaid on the front of it, right? People would flip. You can't steal somebody else's work. And this is why God gets upset about idolatry. He says, that is my work. That is my creation. Uh, in a way, it would be like kidnapping, right? It would be taking somebody else's child and trying to pretend it was yours. There's so many ways that this bothers God. And so we get this idea of jealousy. And because of that jealousy, God uses this huge language. I'm going to destroy the world, right? He's like, everyone who lives in Jerusalem will die. And all of a sudden, it's like a Godzilla movie where it's just like, uh-oh, we are going to, to perish. But the problem that all of us know immediately is when God says, I'm going to destroy all of Jerusalem, we know that there's two or three guys in that crowd that are nice, good people that are not worshiping Baal, that aren't worshiping Moloch. And their question is obviously, wait a second, why is this happening to me? What did I do? Why is this situation occurring in my life? I'm not worshiping at Baal. And that question is addressed as Zephaniah keeps on in his letter. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you've done to me. Because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will I be haughty on my uh, never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. But I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. 
They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and a reproach for you. And at that time, I will deed with... uh, uh, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. And so... Um, Zephaniah talks to us about this really important biblical concept throughout the prophets of the idea of a remnant. That when God brings punishment or destruction or correction, he always leaves behind a remnant of people who have been faithful to him with whom he'll start over. We know this in lots of Bible stories. This is the story of Noah, right? Noah is the remnant. Him and his family are the ones who remain to start over. We see this in the wilderness wandering. When all the people die in the desert, the young people are left because God will have a remnant. When they go into exile, into Babylon, there is a remnant left that continues the story of God's people. And this remnant thing is important. Uh, We can imagine what it would be like. Um, Imagine that you're one of these Israelites living in this time of all this idolatrous worship right? And you're sitting around at your friends just, you know, just doing the Captain Picard thing, right? Like, what are you doing? What is going on? You could imagine talking to your friends and they're like, oh, hey, we're going to go up to the Baal temple. Do you want to go with us? And you're like, guys, you know, that's wrong. You know, that's terrible. Don't do that. And they're like, yeah, man, whatever, loser. And they take off and they go do it. And then the prophet comes into town and goes, because of your Baal worship, you all will die. And you, how frustrating is that? I'm going to die. I've been fussing with them not to do it. Don't I get a pass? And we feel this, right? Um, Sometimes we do blanket punishment for the children. And there's always one child that's like, but I wasn't doing it. And it's like, too bad. You got to deal with it. And that is a real feeling of injustice we feel of, I'm not that way. Why am I dealing with this? And many of us are sitting in that place right now where we have people at work that talk about Christians, where we see on Facebook, oh, the Christians are doing this or that again. And we're like, I'm not doing that. It's not who I am. Why am I getting lumped in with them? And in that place, I think it is very helpful to know that there is this idea of a remnant that God acknowledges and saves people even when there has to be correction in the church. If it feels like the church is changing around you in a bad way, you are not alone. People have always felt this. And often this idea of a remnant is helpful. I think we need to be honest with this. The idolatry thing, that feels a little foreign, right? When I showed you a picture of a little figurine that people bowed down to, you're like, no one does that anymore. But the church has idols to this day. There are things that Christians go after and they trust more than they trust God. Or they give credit to more than they give credit to God. 
And often that looks like, uh, you know, I harp on this because it's true, right? They look at politicians and they're like, these politicians will save us. No, Jesus is going to save you, okay? Let's be clear about that. And they go for all of this stuff that's just frustrating and embarrassing. And in the midst of that, Zephaniah goes, there'll be a remnant. He won't destroy you all. He won't change it for all of you. Um, the beauty of that is the message of Zephaniah is God notices what you do. Um, I think that for some of us, when we try to share Christianity in a kind, lovable, approachable way, we then turn around and see way, the way our friends look at the church and we feel like we're just really insignificant, right? Um, when I, I always do Google image searches, right, to find these pictures for the sermon. Um, Googling Christian, particularly Googling evangelical Christian today is a frustrating, depressing experience because you get to see what the world thinks. This is what Google thinks a Christian is. And it's terrifying and it's frustrating. And if you're like me, you're like, you know what? We deserve for some bad stuff to happen. You know, like we deserve for God to clean house and change some of our brokenness as a people. But in the midst of that, it's easy to feel like what I do doesn't matter. Nobody cares. Nobody notices, no matter how kind and loving I am. Right? I mean, I'll just pick an issue. I promise this is just out of the top of my head. No matter how well we treat women at our church and no much how much we believe that they are equal partners in the gospel, if I Google women in church, I'm going to find somebody, you know, dressed up like a sister wife with a casserole, right? <laughs> you know, like this is just the way the world perceives us. And no matter what we do as a church, it doesn't matter. But God notices when you do good things. God notices when you respect people and you love people and you care for people. And even if the world at large has a poor opinion of your faith based on what they see, God has a strong opinion when you do righteous, good, holy things. And he notices it, and in the end, he honors it. It's really interesting that when Zephaniah talks about this remnant, right, he doesn't say, and I will save the strongest few so they can re-propagate the movement, right? No, Zephaniah says, I will find the meek and I will find the humble, and I will find those who have suffered and been oppressed, and I will save them, and I will start over with them because they know how to walk humbly before me. Um, if you feel that frustration about your faith, know that God recognizes the things that you try to do, and he will honor those things. But also, um, you know, flip side, if you're doing idolatrous things and if you're putting your stuff, your trust in someone other than God and giving them credit for what God does, he's noticing those things too. Um, we just strive to be part of that faithful remnant. All right. Uh, question and answers. Do you have any questions about our text today or the sermon? Or Yeah, arrogance and idolatry do have a connection in that it is... It's really self-worship, right? And this goes all the way back. This is why we have the story of Adam and Eve and how that plays out. Because God says, please do things my way. And Adam and Eve go, I think I know better than you do. And it's uh, that 
arrogance and idolatry that are connected in sort of worshiping the self as the one who knows best. And so, yeah, I think that's it's true. We're talking about insidious idols. I think you're right with the money thing that my money will take care of me instead of God will take care of me. The other one I really think that works is really tricky for us is safety, right? Um, we do all these things about where we buy our houses and what kind of locks we put on our doors and whether we buy security systems. There's all these little things that we do that's many of them are just common sense. Okay, I lock my doors at night, but we still think, oh, well, I want my family to be safe, so I'm going to do all these things that will keep them safe. And in the end, that doesn't always work, you know? And there's all this stuff in Scripture about God being our fortress. And our fortress is ADT, right? And um, I think that that's one that's, that's difficult for many of us. Um, uh, so there's a lot, uh, when we talk about remnant, sometimes remnant then can be connected to some other theology around the book of Revelation. Things like the tri um, tribulation and rapture. There's this belief by many Christians that half of us are going to just disappear someday and go up to heaven and then the world's going to go through a terrible tribulation and then there'll be sort of yeah 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 exactly there was I, and i'm not going to ruin the movie but anyway we can talk about those connections later uh, anyways uh, <laughs> um so yeah how do we deal with this let me put it this way i think there are a lot of issues where the church and the world are in conflict. We actually talked about this in our environmental thing Thursday night because this plays into environmentalism as well. Um, I would just tell my friends, please recognize that pre-tribulation, left-behind, rapture stuff is beliefs that are held by a minority of Christians, definitely throughout history, but even today. If you just wanted a list of the churches that hold those positions and the churches that don't, the ones that don't is a lot bigger. Um, and so that's, it's diversity in the Christian movement. One of the beauties of the church is that we have diversity in how we interpret scripture and that we look at things differently. And I always ask my friends, I just say, please, if there's something that you think Christians think, still ask me, do you think that? Because... You know, there's just variety. Um, uh, I would say that if you look at it historically, if I understand correct, you will be very hard-pressed to find anybody before 1500 A.D., you maybe even 1800 A.D., who holds strongly those kinds of positions. Um, that is a largely American phenomenon that's connected with a premillennialism that was connected with industrial American excitement. Does that make sense? I mean, we could go down this rabbit hole a long time. The history of the doctrine is fascinating in its brevity. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, but I always tell friends, if there's some belief that Christians have, ask me if I have it. Because I can be a bit of a rebel. Sometimes I think things other people don't like, you know? And, um, yeah, I think that's just really helpful, important. Yeah. Christian to block your Christian neighbor. Um, <laughs> I hope it is since I've done it. <laughs> yeah, they can still, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's... 
I don't think they have mute on Facebook. One of the things I like to do is I just try to stay real positive. So I post something positive and then some Christian friend of mine posts something negative. Is that what you're kind of talking about? I would usually, I usually then follow that with a, right now I just feel it's really important that the church expresses how much we love the world. And that's very difficult for them to then be negative about. And if they are, then you have expressed your love via your faith and people will see that. And if they're being a turd, then people will see that too. But uh, Oh, no, I've done that sometimes. I've done p- private messages. And, hey, man, I've blocked a couple people where I'm like, listen, you're just being unreasonable. And what I'm finding, what's really frustrating is I post something that gets my non-Christian friends to be having spiritual conversations on my Facebook feed, and then another pastor comes in and acts like an idiot. And I'm like, good gracious, what am I doing? And sorry, that was maybe a little too sharing. Anyways, um, and so yeah, in those places, I'll move to a private conversation. In extreme situations, there's been one or two people I've said, you're so consistently negative and so consistently make Jesus look bad. I just can't. I'm sorry, man. I'm blocking you. I can't have you. I can't have you causing such a bad. I'm working uphill already to convince my non-Christian friends that there's beauty about what I believe. I can't have you making it harder on me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or just nasty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's why I so often use that fruit of the spirit test that we that I've talked about a lot up here. You know, if you're doing stuff that shows love, joy, patience, patience, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, then it's a sign that God's doing something in you. And if you're doing something that's the opposite of those, it's a sign that God is not involved in what you're doing. And the self-control one is huge. If you're in a conversation and you feel like you are not in control of yourself because you're overcome by emotion, that is a suggestion that maybe you need to slow down and let, let God be a little more involved.